Over the past few months, five writers of Palestinian heritage attended the How to Write Your Nakba Story workshop, hosted by the Institute for Palestine Studies and co-sponsored by United Palestinian Appeal and the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University. To commemorate 75 years of the Nakba, we published their stories in English, Arabic, and Spanish. Since IPS's founding in 1963, the Institute has contributed a uniquely Palestinian voice to the global public discourse. This workshop aimed to give space, support, and power to young writers to tell their own stories. Writers were taught various oral history practices and offered tools from the field of journalism, including how to approach conversations with a trauma-informed lens. It was a great honor for me to be able to organize and lead this workshop. We extend our profound gratitude to the instructors, academics, and journalists who gave their time to share their knowledge. Rami Khouri, Joseph Gideon, Jennifer Mughannam, Omar Gayaga, and Farah Silvana Kanaan. We're also incredibly grateful for Aya Ghaname, who beautifully illustrated these stories, some of which you can see on screen, um, and to the Spanish translators at the Digital Interpreter in Argentina. The wonderful Ahmed Barakat and I had the opportunity to translate these pieces into Arabic with the support of the wonderful copy editors at our Ramallah and Beirut offices, so thank you. In this series, we asked our writers the following questions. What happened to their family and neighbors in 1948? Where did they go? What was different when they stayed, returned? Who was lost? What was left behind? Which memories were passed down? And what was built in exile, in refugee camps, in the generations that came after the expulsion? I want to talk about the power of oral history as journalism. The two practices are very, very similar and yet very different. Both are concerned with recording truth and being accurate. They both rely on interviews for credibility, but journalism is concerned with the immediate truth, wanting to inform an audience about that truth. While oral history is concerned about truth over time, there is more depth in the questions asked, a need to interpret the events that are told, but there is greater perspective and surprisingly more honesty in the practice of oral history. Combining these two practices is powerful because you are using tools of documentation while telling a story. You are verifying information you collect while also engaging in what they mean. You are asking the questions, but not interrogating your subjects. Throughout this workshop, our writers were not outsider journalists or academics parachuting into homes of their families and neighbors. Our writers were part of those families, part of those histories. On a few occasions, I've been asked why this workshop was organized only for those between the ages of 18 and 35, or what we know as youth. Let me first say that we welcome stories from every age. And I assure you, inshallah, if we do this again, all, there will be no limitation on age. But I want people to remember that our expulsion is generational. Our grandparents were expelled from Palestine. Our parents may have been expelled from the Levant or the Gulf during subsequent wars. And we are being expelled from the narrative, forced to forget. But if anything, we are the generation that remembers what our ancestors remember in detail, what they lived through, and what we continue to live through. The age group I mentioned has also lived through events that deeply impacted the Palestinian experience. Some of us grew up in refugee camps like myself, others lived through the Gulf War, 
others through 9-11, the 2006 war in Lebanon, or were caught at the start of the Arab Spring. Our identity has always been at the forefront of our lives. And I've always sat with my grandmother and asked her questions. My sisters, I have four, up until recently did not. And I know that they too are curious, that they quiet down when they hear us speak about where we came from, that they enthusiastically share the work I do. One of my sisters is probably watching. I came to realize that my ability to ask my grandmother the questions that kept her talking because of, were because of certain educational experiences I've had in journalism and academia, experiences that my sisters have not had. This is how the idea of the workshop came about. It has been kind of an experiment to discover what does this generation need? What tools do they need in order to sit down and have that conversation? Today, you will hear excerpts from these stories that we've published. We will share the links in the chat and you will hear from the writers themselves about their experience in learning, collecting, writing, and preserving. I do want to thank our co-sponsors again. A massive gratitude to the United Palestinian Appeal and the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University for helping us make this workshop and these stories possible. We're honored to have been able to work with you in collaboration. We will first hear from Salim Zaru and Rochelle Davis. And I would like to introduce you both before you start. Salim Zaru is the executive director of the United Palestinian Appeal. And since 2011, he, led, he leads a diverse staff across five areas of operations, Gaza, West Bank, Lebanon, Jordan, and Washington, DC. During this period, he has provided strategic leadership in the expansion of UPA's capacity to meet the growing relief and development needs of the most vulnerable Palestinian communities in the MENA region. Salim brings 35 years of executive experience in both the nonprofit and private sectors. As for Rochelle, Rochelle Davis is the Sultanate Oman Associate Professor of Anthropology at the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Her research focuses on refugees, war, and conflict, particularly in Palestine, Syria, and Iraq. Her first book, Palestinian Village Histories, Geographies of the Displaced, was co-winner of the Middle East Studies Association's Albert Horani Book Award, recognizing outstanding publications in Middle East studies. The book addresses how Palestinian refugees today write histories of their villages that were destroyed in the 1948 war and the stories and commemorations of village life that are circulated in the diaspora. Thank you both for being here with us. Salim, please take the floor. Thank you, Laura. I uh, wanna tell you briefly a little bit about UPA and why supporting this effort is uh, such an important opportunity for UPA and other organizations. Uh, when Laura spoke to me uh, several months ago about this, I thought this was such a great opportunity and I felt it was uh, really a blessing for UPA to be able to support uh, this great effort. And I wanna thank you for this opportunity, Laura. Uh, United Palestinian Appeal, uh, commonly known as UPA, is the oldest Palestinian American humanitarian organization. It is a 501c3 not-for-profit corporation with headquarters in Washington, DC and offices in the West Bank, Gaza, Jordan, and Lebanon. Established in 1978, 
in New York by Palestinian American professionals, UPA was conceived as a non-political, non-sectarian organization that would help Palestinians meet their relief and development needs. This year marks UPA's 45th anniversary. It is an important milestone in UPA's history. The organization's services are needed today as much as they were at the time of its establishment, if not more. And the growth and development of UPA only reflects the predicament that the Palestinian people continue to face. UPA's leadership recognizes that accomplishing our vision of contributing to the long-term socioeconomic and cultural development of Palestinian communities requires actions guided by social responsibility. Whereas charity attempts to alleviate the symptoms of substandard living, social responsibility guided by the pursuit of social justice will address the causes of it, in our case, a Nakba. Many Palestinians have no chance whatsoever at advancing in life or improving their conditions because of unjust political structures as well as social injustices promoted by the manipulation of power and wealth within our own communities. Since Nakba, the list of disadvantages to the Palestinian people has never been so obvious as it has in recent times. This reality inspires UPA to have a call to action in pursuit of socially responsible development and to move into the public sphere, sphere to promote this change. Considering the enormity of this challenge and the seriousness of the undertaking, this public sphere, both within Palestinian society and on the global level, must be of equivalent magnitude. Hence, the need for significant organizational partnerships such as we are witnessing today. UPA strives to mobilize and energize other like-minded organizations to work under one umbrella, expanding that public sphere in which meaningful and impactful actions will make socially just development for Palestinians viable. UPA empowers Palestinians to improve their lives and communities through socially responsible and sustainable programs in health, education, and community and economic development. In fulfilling our mission, we create opportunities that reinforce the dignity of the people we serve. We embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion in the communities we support. We are transparent in our practices 
and we hold ourselves accountable to our stakeholders. By so doing, Palestinians will be enabled to address the root cause of their injustice, both within our own society and beyond, and to survive till we have an opportunity to thrive despite the turbulent political and economic environment. UPA is committed to motivate, mobilize, and energize organizations, also individuals, to move in this direction. More importantly, building on UPA's 45 years of service to the Palestinians. UPA has the social responsibility and the moral obligation to do so. Thank you. Thank you so much, Salim, and congratulations on 45 years. IPS is also celebrating its 60th year anniversary, so. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Uh, Rochelle, please go ahead. Sure, thank you very much for including uh, the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies in this um, amazing adventure that you have all undertaken. And um, it's really our honor to support this wonderful initiative and to also partner with um, United Palestinian Appeal uh, and to support and learn more about their good works. Um, I know when, um, when IPS reached out to us about this, we were all super excited because it is so innovative and so, um, such an important thing for an institution to really kind of say, hey, young people out there, we want to hear what you have to say and to really support you. And also to do it in English, Arabic and, in, and Spanish is really fantastic as well. So kudos to you all for thinking through this. Um, I just want to say a few more things. One thing I, I really think that's important about what this project is, is the intergenerationalness of it in terms of really thinking across generations where it connects sort of young people today to their parents, their grandparents and their great grandparents and to learn about not only, you know, the occasion that we're commemorating, which is the 75 years since the Nakba, but the ongoing Nakba that continues to this to this day. And so how the beginning of that and how it continues to reflect and refract through people's lives. Um, the other thing I really um, love about this initiative, and I, I'm going to get a slightly academic here as I think think through this. So um, I, I think it builds on the work of so many other um, Palestinian um, Palestinians and Palestinian allies who have done, um, Laura, what you have, have talked about, whether they are or doing oral history. And so I can think of, you know, Rosemary Sayer and Nafiz Nazal, um, who, who, were, who were doing this work in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, um, or the Birzeit Oral History Project, which created these, and Life History Projects, which created these, um, these amazing collections. Um, and I'm really just skimming the surface here, so forgive, everybody should forgive me if I've left people out. Um, but also really the inspiring journalism of so many Palestinian journalists. And I, you know, I think it's worth noting that a year ago, Shireen Abu Atli was assassinated by the Israelis. And, and you are really walking in her footsteps because she was such an amazing journalist and such an amazing symbol to all of us. I mean, to all humans um, of, of what being a committed journalist um, means and the danger that one um, faces doing that. Um, I also, as I, as I 
kind of get the snippets of your story, stories that you have written, it makes me think of so many Palestinian writers, novelists or short story writers like Ghassan Kanafani and his Land of Sad Oranges or Return to Haifa and these kind of stories of, you know, Ghassan and, uh, was, was writing, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s um, before his assassination by the Israelis. Um, but he was telling a story from a particular generational, you know, one or two generational perspective. And you, you have additional, you know, additional years and additional experiences um, to add to that. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's hugely important to, to keep these kind of genealogies um, that, that they go. And then, you know, I've just gotten snippets like everyone else of Aya Ghanameh's uh, beautiful illustrations, but it also then makes me think of Ismail Shamut and his work um, and how he was seen as this kind of illustrator of, of, of Palestinian history. Um, and so I, I just kind of wanted to say all of this because to me, I, I personally think that the the, the idea of, of of asking young young people the shabab <laughs> to 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 write their stories is is really asking them to also connect to their ancestors not only their immediate ancestors but also to their Palestinian ancestors across the generations who have and, and many of these people that I have mentioned so um, with that I will just say it's it's our honor to be part of this and I'm so excited for you all and for all of us who get to get to listen to, read, and, and, and look at all that you produce. So thank you, and thank you for including us. Thank you so much, Rochelle, and thank you so much for bringing all these similarities um, together. We indeed did take inspiration um, from all the oral history work that was already existing, from all the journalists that were out there. Um, to tell everyone what we're going to do now is we're gonna have readings and a discussion. And we're going to start with Marah Abdel Jabir, I'm going to share everybody's bios in the chat and everybody uh, is capable of using the chat to engage with us as the writers read. So Marah is a Palestinian writer, researcher and creative currently pursuing her master's degree um, in Middle Eastern studies at the University of Chicago. Marah wrote through song and sacrifice, Silwaj Remains, where three grandparents pieced together severed memories of Silwad to bring us tales of defiance against British soldiers and the Israeli occupation and women singing in the field. Her story is a generational treasure, uncovering the becoming of a young woman. Marah, please take the floor. Thank you so much, Laura. Can everybody hear me? Great. Um, I'm just going to read a snippet of my story that I think encompasses all of my grandparents' experiences. Siti Hafsa was a badar in her youth, a natural poet who uses folk songs to bring joy and tell stories. It's a tradition long practiced by Palestinian women, especially at weddings. A badar would typically lead other women in song. She preserves and protects heritage, allowing generations to savor Palestine through her songs. The root of the word in Arabic means to create. The songs are often improvised, sung in the local dialect. We, the girls of the village, used to sing and go to the olive press. The daughters of the Hamad tribe and the daughters of the Hamad tribe would compete. Hamad, Hamad, and Ayad were the first tribal leaders and subsequent founders of Sidwad. The ancestry of the village traces back to the three men, with most families today drawing their lineage from the two brothers, Hamad and Hamad. Moving to the orchards during the gathering seasons, living in stone houses built for the harvest, Siti Hafsa reminisces on absorbing slivers of sunlight that peeks through a pergola of layered grapevines. 
She dedicates love songs to the land that raised her. Oh, northern breeze, go to those whose doors open to the north. I am a dewdrop among the prairie beasts. Having grown up during British colonial rule, Siti Hafsa often cannot distinguish between the armies which march through her home. Memories of the Nakba are often intertwined with prior clashes with illegal settlers and aggression from occupiers in the 1960s. As she recounts the incessant raids, public humiliations, terror, and growing resistance from within the village, the attribution of violence fluctuates between British and Zionist occupiers. We had freedom fighters in the village. They would go out and hit the tanks of the occupation army. Then the soldiers would return in the morning and raid our homes. It was a terrible life those years. Soldiers would empty all the homes in Sulawad and force villagers to sit in the open wheat fields for hours. Searching for weapons, freedom fighters, and any sign of resistance, the occupation forces would callously exhaust villagers lying under the piercing sun. Drifting through the soil, her sentiment drifts. The field is no longer recognized for the beautiful life it provided. The encroaching occupation clause is a bond between the people and their land. Her leathery cheeks, signaling frequent encounters with the sweltering heat, brighten as she relives the moment. The resistance was magnificent, the 94-year-old affirms. Nodding to her love for my late grandfather. Her song continues, I am the dew falling on my lover's heart. Coming from a long lineage in Sulawad with a home surviving an ancestry of over 200 years, Sidi Mahmoud possesses absent memories of the village. As catastrophe ensued along the coast only days after his 12th birthday, the suspension of schools across Palestine resulted in the suspension of my grandfather's youth. The devastation of the Nexa lingers in Sidi Mahmoud's mind as he seeks memories of the home he worked endlessly to support, yet never lived in. He was forced to move to Amman to find work. It was only me, Abdul Qadir, and Abdullah, my brothers. My father had to stay and maintain our land, he recalls. We rented a single room, and I used to work for two dinars per month. My grandfather remembers his first job, alone, confined in a dark, suffocating room, packaging wholesale goods. After three years in Amman, he moved to Kuwait, following his brother Abdul Qadir. There were better job opportunities in the Gulf. This marked the beginning of a cycle of migration that my grandfather endured for the remainder of his teenage years. I would send them money in the mail, he says. He recounts the limited correspondence with his family due to the gaps in his parents' literacy. The 87-year-old stoicism unravels as he reveals coexisting agony and pride in sustaining his family's land, financing the construction of a new home left uninhabited, and supporting his three younger brothers' education. When his father passed from a sudden heart attack, Sidi Mahmoud somberly returned to Suez. Amid his homecoming, he met my grandmother. The youngest of my living grandparents, Seta Nazmiya does not remember the Nakba. Unable to recollect her early childhood in Haifa, she recounts Suez as a place of isolation. Her mother, from Nazareth, feared the conditions of the village after 1948, restricting Seta earliest memories of Palestine to time spent in her father's fig grove. Her reserved nature is overcome by excitement as memories of her youth rush forward. He was the largest producer of dried figs in the village. In anticipation of the Nekba, her father sent her to their family in Sulad to purchase farmland. He declared figs the livelihood of the poor, as they had a quicker and longer harvest period. Olive trees required at least 10 years to grow and produce fruit, whereas fig trees could be ready in two. Adequate time to protect his family from impending violence along the coast. My God, it was so beautiful, she recalled. Beyond the harvest, Seta Nazmiya was taught Tatriz by a private tutor employed by her mother to supplement her solitude. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Marah. Um, it was honestly, it was an honor to work with you on this story. I've learned a lot. Um, I've never knew what Abadda'a was. So I think that that was at least my takeaway from that. And I, I would hope to meet your grandparents one day. Um, we will now go to Odette Hidi. Odette is a Palestinian-Colombian cultural entrepreneur, researcher, writer, and educator interested in Arab-Latin relations and the intersection between migration and identity. Odette wrote The Secret Life of Sido Habib. In her story, we are brought to the massacre of Ailabun in the Jalil. Odette writes about her late uh, grandfather-in-law, Sido Habib, whose life weaves tragedy and joy together from the Jalil to Jerusalem to the Americas. Go ahead, Odette. Thank you, Laura. Thank you very much. Let me open my story. Um, okay, here I go. We left the village boundaries and continued our road trip around Galilee, driving a small rented car without GPS. After roaming around the slippery soup in Aka, we ate fish, fried fish by the sea, as we did when Sido Habib and his wife traveled from Flint, Michigan to Barranquilla, Colombia, to visit three of his four children. Later, we drove to Tiberias in search of the modest YMCA hotel where he once worked alongside Janet, the youngest of his children and his only daughter. He also worked at the YMCA hotel in Jerusalem. At dawn, we began our return to Ilabun. Sido Habib effortlessly guided us back. Our day had been long and exhausting after trying to engage in simple yet profound conversations in a bizarre mix of our broken Arabic, English, and Spanish. Nonetheless, we were dazzled by how Sido Habib, already in his 80s and a naturalized American citizen, recognized the roads. He seemed to know every old shortcut and every path back home after 30 years of exile. His sense of location was as sharp as his sense of adapta adaptability. Sido Habib was 13 when his family was expelled. They walked barefoot through the mountains for three days through freezing nights toward the south, the south of Lebanon. They settled in the Miamiya refugee camp in Saida. Sido Habib would always say that he, they survived on whatever the dogs wouldn't eat. After the massacre in, the, in their village and several weeks in exile, they were permitted to return an unusual fate in contrast with that of inhabitants of hundreds of depopulated villages during the night. Thank you so much, Odette. I'm gonna be honest, I cried working on that story. We spent a lot of time on it that when it came for us to share it to social media, I just had to stop and like cry and then come back to it. Um, it's a very, very touching story. And Allah Sido Habib passed away earlier this year. Um, I would like to get us into a little bit of a discussion from everybody. And perhaps we can start with Abdullah first. Um, I do have a few questions. Um, so first, can you maybe tell me, how did you approach conversations with family and friends? What challenges did you face in collecting these stories and verifying these memories? Yeah, thank you, uh, Laura, for the question, and thanks to all the uh, the sponsors um, of this project for supporting us in doing this. Um, uh, it's honestly, it was like throughout my life, it's been very difficult to talk to to people in my family, like our elders, about uh, about their experiences. 
Um, I started some years ago just trying to like record people while they talk to me and, and you know, like have these sort of informally informally done conversations that were not for any particular project, but just for the sake of, of, of having this on record somewhere. Um, and, and, and even that was really difficult to do. Uh, and I think that this is true for a lot of Palestinians who are, who are, who are trying to do projects like this. Um, but I think in term, but I think now, uh, something that I think has benefited me has been able, being able to kind of properly explain why this is important. Um, but at the same time, while explaining why this is important, I feel like we have to also recognize that, you know, the people who experience these things deserve you know, privacy in many ways also, because these experiences are collective, but they're also personal. Um, and, and it's kind of difficult to balance these things. I think sometimes when I'm thinking as like maybe a, an academic, but when I'm thinking as like their grandchild, um, it, it becomes very clear to me uh, that, that, that that's uh, something that we have to negotiate. Um, and also, I mean, while, while, while trying to kind of preserve these histories and these stories and testimonies, it's also important to be aware of the fact that large archives of oral history and personal testimonies already exist. Um, and they're already loaded with stories about atrocities and trauma. Um, and so I think that these were all kind of like factors that played into like how I was able to, to, to try and approach these conversations. Thank you, Abdullah. Zain, would you like to take the question next? Of course. Um, can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right. So regarding how I approached, um, you know, my conversations, and mainly it was through my mother. Um, and this is all something that I've grew up to, like the story that I wrote about, which is about my grandfather and my grandmother's love story, was something I've always, you know, heard growing up. And um, and for me, I grew up in exile. I grew up in Doha and Qatar, um, far from Palestine. Um, and so the idea of home has always been, you know, a little weird to me. Like, what is home? And and um, and I somehow found home in these stories. Whenever I asked my mom questions, whenever um, I learned more about parents, I learned more about why I am the way I am, why I'm located in Qatar, and somehow how did that happen? Why my why did my mom grow up in Palestine and all of that? Um, so I found home in these stories and it's always something that I've loved and I've always shared it with so many of my friends and family, um, just the story of my grandparents. And so it wasn't something weird or different for me, but I, I, I had to take a step back and think about how I'm going to be writing this um, for a larger audience that I don't personally know and how do I you know, give, make justice to this story. And one of the challenges I also faced was the fact that I don't, did not have access to my grandparents to ask them directly these questions. My grandfather passed away before I was born and my grandmother passed away in 2008 and I was seven, six. I'd never actually properly asked her these questions. Um, so that was one of the main challenges that I faced. But I think, you know, sort of trying to take a step back and, and trying to find ways, um, you know, to, you know, do justice to this story was something that I had to, um, you know, take into account and 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 think about that, especially when I was talking to my uh, my mom about these stories um, about my grandparents. Um, but yeah, I think it was um, the workshop has helped a lot as well in trying to sort of deal with this. So yeah. Thank you, Zain. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, with Abdullah, you're trying to get the stories out, and with Zain, you don't have the opportunity to get these stories. So how you both navigated that. Um, we do have a fifth writer who unfortunately got COVID. Uh, her name is Samah Fadl. I think this is a reminder for all of us to, um, 
to stay cautious and salamtik samah, I hope you're watching this. She did send in an answer to this question, which I'm going to read out. Um, I'm sharing her story in the in the chat. Um, so for her, she didn't interview a family member. She interviewed a family member of her best friend, uh, so the father of her best friend. And she says that my role was simply to give the floor to Shafiq and let him share his experience. I've known this family for almost two decades at this point, and I only really started to know about their Palestinian history very recently. Shafiq himself opened up to me after he noticed my work regarding Palestine. He was eager to speak, and I wanted nothing more than to give him that opportunity. For a retired elder to come to me and feel that level of comfort, it's an honor. Elder Arabs aren't necessarily eager to chat with just anybody. To me, all Palestinian stories deserve a stage, and my role is to showcase and write about as many as I can. Family, friends, strangers, and outsiders. We all matter, and our stories deserve to be preserved. This has been my approach so far, and people have been really receptive to it. I've shared Samah's story in the chat, as of others. Marah, would you go, would you go next? Of course. Um, thank you so much for sharing Samah's um, comments. For me, um, something that's critical in developing my story, and um, it's a large part of my story, and I think everybody who participated in this workshop has heard me speak about it a million times, but it was very difficult for me to collect these stories because all three of my grandparents have varying degrees of dementia. And so we're combating memory loss and fragmentation of memory. And also there's a sort of, difficulty in approaching this conversation, similar to what Abdullah was saying, is it's very personal, it's very intimate, it's very private. And it's a vulnerable position for somebody to be in, especially someone whose memory comes in and out. And, you know, they return home for solace. They don't return home to remember the sacrifices that they made or to remember the pain. And oftentimes it's very difficult for them when they have memories of home because when your memory is fragmented and when you have dementia or um, any degree of memory loss, you sort of return into that moment fully and completely and you see yourself in that position. And so I had to be very careful in approaching each of my grandparents and to get these stories. And actually it was also very difficult because I don't live at home currently. Um, I'm across the country. So whenever I did go home, I had to kind of try to take advantage of the time as much as possible, but that's difficult because every day you're kind of dealing with a different memory of a person. It's, Sort of a different personality depending on how their day was and um, how that week was going and so actually I had collected my grandfather's story first I had interviewed him first a month before both of my grandmothers and when I was interviewing um, Sido Mahmoud was in the room and he his memory just started running and I actually collected a lot more of his story during her interview because he was triggered by the memory of her own home. And so while she was recounting her history and her story, he started having a flood of memories of what life in Silwaz was like, um, his father's life, his family's life. And when he was telling me the story one-on-one, -on -one, it was more just um, very stoic and simple and chronological. This is where I was this year. This is where I was the next. And it was difficult to get him to kind of be engaged with the emotion because I don't think he was in that mental space at the time. And eventually that was triggered by my grandmother's story. And similarly with Sissi Hafsa, when I was speaking to her, it was a little bit difficult. And then I had left that week and that full week, she was asking my mom if she wanted me to tell her my story 
and um, to tell me her story. And she was coming up with songs to sing for me related to her history and to her story because the memories had been triggered at that point. And she sort of crawled back into her childhood and returned to the space um, of Silwad. And so for us, we have a much more clear distinction between our physical um, and our mental state. But for them, something triggers that and they return home. And so I had to kind of go back and forth in collecting these memories. Thank you, Marah. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And I, I think that also speaks to the fact that when we are collecting these oral histories, when we are doing these interviews, it's just not a one-time thing, right? It's a continuous thing. The, the person is left with their memories when you walk away. So you, you need to come back to that. Um, Odette, would you like to take this question? Yes. So thank you, Laura. Um, hello, everyone. I am sorry for joining in late. I was in another meeting that I couldn't postpone. Um, for me, the biggest challenge was language. So my knowledge of Arabic came very late when I was 18. I traveled to Jordan and I studied Arabic in Jordan. So Arabic was absent from my in my childhood. Um, one of my four grandparents came here in 1952, the others, were born here in Colombia. So with my maternal grandmother, I, I mean, I could speak Arabic, but she came as a very young kid. So she basically forgot her Arabic. The story that I'm writing is actually not my uh, blood family. It is my political family. Um, and it's basically the same story. In Colombia, we have a Palestinian diaspora that is born before the Nakba. So we have Palestinians here that are fourth, fifth generation, whose family came in the 1910, 1920s. So the Nakba is a concept that is completely absent to them. Um, it, is, it has been very hard for me to try to bring the narrative of the Nakba into my community because I'm, I'm not saying that all of them came after the Nakba, but 90% of them came be before the Nakba. So it has been complicated to, to make them understand in that sort of way that it was there was a Palestine before and there is a different Palestine now. And in many cases, they didn't even get to know the old Palestine because as I told you, they are already fourth, fifth generation and they never underwent a process to, to reappropriate or reclaim the memories of their grandparents. They didn't see it as necessary because their migration histories were not trauma informed. They were not, they, they had not, uh, they were not the product of the traumatic Nakba experience. Most of them were the product of very old migrations from the 1910, 1920s, when Palestine was still uh, uh, under Ottoman rule or years after during the British mandate. So it was hard to, to, to speak about it and to get them to understand the, the importance of the Nakba. And language, of course, was very hard for me because of course, my political family, some of them are still in, in Palestine and they speak Arabic as their native language. And I'm really bad at speaking. I do understand more. But this also gave me uh, some light into what we are and what I am. I mean, the Palestinian diaspora today and Palestinians today, we're a multilingual society. We're a multilingual community. Even though, yes, Arabic is our language and we have to to conserve it and to safeguard our traditions. And for example, um, the traditions that we read about, about the Bada, 
I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing. Um, but we also have to know that we are, that we, we, we speak many languages and we are in many countries and we need to make more accessible the information in many languages and in many geographies. And, and that's part, essential part of who we are, of our Palestinian identity today. Thank you. Thank you, Odette. And Odette has been really helpful actually with the, with the Spanish accessibility process. Um, she's the one who initially suggested, can we have this in Spanish? I'm telling my story. I want my community to know. So thank you so much for, for advocating that. Um, I'd like us to go back to two of the readings. Uh, so maybe Abdullah, if you're ready. Abdullah Mwaswis is a writer, researcher, translator, and educator. Um, he's written about the politics of food with a special reference to Shai Karak, which I love, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. Um, he wrote Life on the Run from One War to Another. He wrote about his grandmother, Selwa, who was expelled by sea on a rowboat in Yaffa. She then spent much of her life escaping death in Lebanon. Hers is a story of, per of perseverance and of the inevitability of being Palestinian. Abdullah, you have the floor. Thank you. This was the first time I recall my grandmother comfortably opening up about her expulsion from Palestine. She narrated the moments she regarded as key in her life. In September 1964, Selwa married my grandfather, Adnan, who worked as a sports instructor at the YMCA of Lebanon. Adnan was also a refugee from Yaffa. My mother, Huda, was born 10 months later. The family lived in Harat Hreik. Salwa taught at an Unerwa school in Burj al-Baraj in a camp while Adnan started working for the American Life Insurance Company. They were always preoccupied with work, so my mother was raised by her namesake, Um Adnan, her grandmother. Huda was nine years old when Um Adnan passed. Between the end of 1973 and the beginning of 1974, the family moved to Hazmiya. The move was prompted after my uncle Khalil disappeared for three days. Right-wing Lebanese militants attacked Palestinian groups near his school. Students were evacuated, and a teacher housed him in a town called Su'al Gharb, which at the time he referred to as Su'al Harb, but that's not part of the story. Salwa wanted to move closer to the school and closer to all her children, so should such a threat recur. They lived in Hazmiyeh for one year when the unmistakable specter of Mashakil forced them to move once again temporarily, or so they thought. The Syrian army was invading Lebanon. The family never returned to that home, heading east. We found a furnished house in Sofar that we planned to stay in for three months and then go back, my grandmother says, but we could not go back. Summer, winter, and then we moved to a place farther away. My grandmother lived life on the run, escaping one war for another. They first stayed in Abilias, then the village of Jdita, tucked into the Biqa'a Valley. In Jdita, the family survived the bomb attack that led my, my grandmother to decide that the family must leave Lebanon. I remember the owner of the house saying to my mother, you're still alive, my mother tells me. When I asked my grandmother why she decided to leave, she simply said that it was, quote, because of politics. In 1980, Salwa and her family left Lebanon. She first traveled alone, scouting a land famous for its temperate climate, juicy citrus fruits, and shining coastline. This was not a return to the family's ancestral home in Yaffa, a return that the Israeli occupation restricts to this day, but rather she traveled halfway across the world to a place poetically known as Orange County. Thank, Thank you. you. I remember we were having a lot of conversations about how identity manifests 
for your family, how they were displaced over time. Um, and I hope you can speak more about your conversations with your with your grandmother and mom. Zan, would you like to go next? So uh, Zan is uh, just graduated from Georgetown University in Qatar, congratulations. Um, and she works part-time um, as an engagement, assistant engagement producer with Al Jazeera English. She wrote, in Janine, fates intertwine. We read the story of Zan's grandparents uh, finding each other in the embattled city. Their love story speaks to the steadfastness of the Palestinian people. It's a story of sacrifice stemming from the very beginning in 1948, her grandfather establishing the Iraqi Martyr Cemetery in Jenin. Go ahead, Zan. My grandfather Fayez found solace in the quiet simplicity of the Iraqi Martyr Cemetery in Jenin. This hallowed ground served as his personal refuge where he could escape from the world's pressures and seek solace in the memories of those who left this earth before him. My grandmother Kamle would make him tea to warm him in the stillness of the night. For my grandmother, Janine became an unexpected refuge. She was born in Akka in 1932, and in 1948, she was suddenly displaced and found herself all alone in Janine, without her mother or sister. She had never imagined this life for herself, far from her home in Akka. However, fate had other plans for her. With a cup of tea and the aroma of Miramiya and my teary-eyed mother, we sat together as she recalled my grandparents' Nakba stories. My grandfather's 1948 was shaped by his experiences establishing the Iraqi Martyr Cemetery. This cemetery held a special place in my grandfather's heart, for it was more than just a final resting place for the departed. It was a pregnant reminder of the selflessness and courage exhibited by the Iraqi soldiers during the Nakba, when the brutal crimes of Zionist militias threatened the very existence of the Palestinian city of Jenin. 44 Iraqi soldiers were killed in the Battle of Jenin. Taking a deep breath, my mother recalls what her father experienced. He found them lying in their blood. They were martyred, yet no one bothered to do anything. People were scared to get close to them. My grandfather, with the help of other men in the village, collected their body bodies and buried them on a property he owned, establishing the Iraqi Martyr Cemetery. My mother recalled how my grandfather described the smell of their bodies. They released an aromatic scent of misk, they were martyrs after all. My grandfather, before 1948, spent his days farming. He never thought he'd find himself in a situation where the existence of his home city would be at risk. The Arakim Cemetery would consume his life and legacy. They, the martyrs, were his life, my mother would say over and over again. Hayato. He met his wife, my grandmother, soon after. She was from the old city of Akka, next to Al Jazar Mosque. My mother recollects her memories of visiting my grandmother's hometown. When Palestinians were being expelled from their villages and towns in 1948, my grandmother was visiting her family and friends in the village of, of Arrabe in Jenin. Her father had passed away, and her mother and only sister were back in Akka. When the stories of massacres spread, fear was heightened. Her mother and sister were expelled from their home, displaced, and turned into refugees in Saida, Lebanon while she was in Janine. She got stuck in Janine with nothing. She never imagined this would ever happen to her. Your grandmother left her home with all its goodness and glory. She did not know what the future held for her, my mother sighs, snip, sipping a cup, another cup of tea with longing in her eyes. But soon after the Battle of Janine, my, my grandfather would come across my grandmother. He used to regularly visit his uncles and th that lived in Arabe, and they happened to be neighbors with the same people my grandmother was staying with. They crossed paths, and fell in love at some point in 1948. 
He fell in love with your grandmother, passion, gharam. She was a very beautiful woman, and he was known as the Antar, the fearless. Everyone respected him in the village. He was also a handsome, tall, and blue-eyed man, Lantar. My grandmother fell for him, but his parents disapproved of their union. In their eyes, she was a refugee, not worthy of marrying their son. Yet, by 1949, they eloped. My grandfather could not take her back to his family house, so they moved to the Bustan, the garden where he farmed. The Bustan was like heaven, my mother says with a smile. I swear to God, it's not flattery. She described how when one would sit beneath the grape tree, the leaves would cover the skies like a blanket. My grandparents now, two lives intertwined, continued to face the consequences of the Nakba and the years of falling and getting, up, getting back up again. Three of their children were poisoned and passed away after eating contaminated vegetables from the garden. And in 1967, Zionists struck the home they built in the Bustan and destroyed it. Only the metal framing of the room remained. The same year, my grandmother was nine months pregnant. When the Six Day War began, alongside other villagers, villagers my grandparents and their children hid in the mountains next to the town of Al Shohada. Around the second or third day of the war, my grandmother's water broke. She gave birth to my aunt, Amal, in the cave. They named her Amal, Hope in Arabic, in the hopes that Palestine will be freed, my mother says. They did not foresee the future of Janine and other Palestinian cities as the occupation expanded its reach. Occupation, settlements, and resistance would flog the rest of their lives. My mother was a child during the first of the Fada. She described how my grandfather at an elderly age was constantly targeted, harassed, and interrogated by the Israeli regime. And like many Palestinians, my grandparents' eldest son was arrested and put into renewed and arbitrary administrative detention cycle. He was then sentenced to six years in prison. Despite the life of sorrow and loss that my grandparents experienced after the Nakba, my mother says they had love. Their lives were a tribute to the Palestinian human spirit of resistance. My grandfather passed away in his late 90s in Amman in 2001, 11 months before I was born. His dying wish was to be buried alongside his Arabic comrades in Janin, but he was laid to rest in Janin at a different cemetery beside his best friend. And my grandmother, who passed away in 2008, also had a dying wish to be buried in her hometown of Akka. She was, however, laid to rest in Amman, far from the land that was once her home. Last year, I was in Janin. I visited the Iraqi Martyr Cemetery. I walked the ground my grandfather walked. I touched the cypress trees he planted. And I looked upon the rows of headstones and knew I was part of something great, a legacy of bravery and sacrifice that would endure for generations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zain. Uh, you all have really powerful stories and I think through your story, we, we really understand the saying that is resistance must also mean life, right? Um, being able to love, being able to live um, and, and, and fight back for what is what is ours. Uh, and I think something else about your story is that we all know the Iraqi cemetery in Janin, but I think you're bringing a personal perspective to that. I'd like to us to go back to the questions a little bit and maybe Marah will start with you. So throughout the workshop, just to give everybody an idea, we gave the writers an oral history training, how to do interviews in a as a reporter, but also as an academic, um, how to outline a feature story, how to tell a story in a journalistic style. So what I spoke of in the beginning regarding the power of combining oral history and journalism. And perhaps this question is, how did you all balance the journalistic and oral history tools that you learned in the workshop with your own personal and emotional connections to the stories. After all, you were not outsiders. And for you, what were the most valuable lessons that you learned from the workshop instructors throughout this process? Marah, go ahead. 
Thank you, Laura. Um, I think the obvious and simple answer is um, I very clearly learned how to approach um, journalism from the perspective of oral history specifically and how to develop a feature. But a lot of this workshop, and I think our experience being Palestinian writers dissecting our own histories, it's extremely personal. And so while we were gaining a lot of technical and practical tools, a lot of this actually kind of delved into um, our own abilities to disconnect, but also to evaluate our emotional um, connection to these stories. And we actually received a question in the Q&A, which I wanted to address because this kind of ties into what I learned from the workshop. Someone was asking what um, we think about the exclusion of Palestinian narratives from Eurocentric trauma theory and how their work can contribute to voicing Nekva and Palestinian traumas and their inscription in the realm of counter-canonical trauma theory. One of the um, most impactful workshops, in my opinion, was the trauma-informed writing workshop. Because for me, throughout this process, I was literally directly tackling my own trauma and generational traumas and things that I had not taken a step back to process were a part of generational trauma. One of the most significant ones being my family's push for education. All three of my grandparents have a different story as to why they were unable to continue their education or why they were even unable to receive education. And I interviewed my grandfather right after the trauma-informed writing workshop. And I realized that his story about why he was unable to receive an education because of the NECA and how he had to get spend his life sacrificing and working to support his family bled into my experience, feeling like I always had to push very hard for an education and not really understanding why education is so significant and why it's also so important. Early on, I didn't understand why it was so important to emphasize Palestinian narratives, but now that's my entire life and that's the work that I do and I've devoted a lot of my work to that. And through this, by engaging with our own families and being Palestinian writers, taking over the narrative and producing our own stories, we get to choose and be very selective in how we portray these stories. And if you read all of these stories, you get to see, it's not just a feature about an individual that each one of us knew. You can see how each individual person interacted with and accepted this history in the way that they write it, in the information that they chose to portray and to unveil and to publicize and what we decided to leave for ourselves and to keep personal. And so this directly tackles um, the lack of Palestinian narratives in public discourse and especially in academia. And we're, although this is not necessarily um, an inherently academic endeavor or it's not labeled as an academic endeavor, it entirely, it absolutely is. And our efforts toward oral history can be used to understand Palestinian trauma and the impact of generational trauma specifically in the Nekba, but also beyond and how this is a chronic um, trauma and it's sort of unwavering and how we're able to combat that through recollecting our histories. Thank you Marah for sharing that and for, for bringing your own personal connection to it as well. I think it's really important to address that and I'm glad that the trauma-informed session helped you. Odette, would you like to take this question next? Um, well, for me, it was a, a bit challenging to try to take off my academic hat because I usually or currently I've been writing more academic papers and trying to write a feature story that could be 
accessible and could be relevant in any moment that someone in a couple of years can go back. And that's something I learned actually in the workshop in actually in our last session, going back to that piece and finding it um, relevant, interesting, being able to learn something from it or to find some sort of call to action after reading it. It was, it was enriching maybe for me to, to see this other possibility of writing other than simple academic writing and actually it has invited me to to ask myself every day like where can I find another story what what else what what ordinary thing or person or event can I turn into an extraordinary uh, event or person throughout through a feature story for example um, so that for me was was very inspiring to to learn this other kind of narrative that that I could have um, as a tool to to continue promoting the knowledge about Palestine. And something also that I learned in the first session that was very inspiring was how can I, how can we write about universal topics or what universal topics can we reclaim from our particular histories and stories? And this is important because as you know, and I spoke earlier, I live in Barranquilla, I live in Colombia. It's a very small Caribbean city. And we ourselves in Colombia have a very complicated history of of internal conflict. So why would someone, why would a young student be interested in learning about Palestine if we continue to see Palestine so far away, quote unquote, and Edward Said comes here to explain why we, we continue to see the Orient the way we see it, including Palestine. So why would my students would like to, or feel the need to learn about Palestine? And I. A couple of days ago, I did a reading circle with some students at the university, and I began saying or telling them that as, as Colombians, we would also love or would also want others to see all of the stories that make up our society and, and that build our past and explain our present. How would we feel if we only knew or if people outside only knew one version of what happened in Colombia, whatever version that is? Um, and as we are omitting or silencing Palestinian voices or stories that can happen to us. And if we allow it to happen to one people, then it is, um, then the possibility is there for it to happen to other peoples around the world. So I feel that somehow they felt the necessity to know and to feel about other people because we are in kind of a same situation as Latinos or as Colombians when they address our our, our, our situations and realities. And just to close something that is also very important is that how vital it is for us to preserve or to safeguard oral history and traditions. Because as I've, <laughs> as I've always said, like Palestinians, I mean, our own existence has been put into doubt. We, we are asked to not say that we're Palestinians or to feel Palestinians or to publicly say we are. And I tell, and, and I always tell my students, if you, if there is no victim, there is no crime. So if we continue to allow the erasure of Palestinian people, then the crime of colonialism, of ethnic cleansing, of apartheid will not proceed because there is no victim and we are the victims. And we have to um, make sure that future generations and current generations know about Palestine and of Palestinians, because otherwise then we are 
um, being partners to the crimes that are being committed against us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Odette, for, for sharing that. And it's really important for us to really engage in these in these ideas and what's going on around us. Um, Abdullah, if you'd like to take this question next. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'm going to pick up a little bit from, from where Odette left off, actually, because I also have, uh, like, most of my writing is academic writing. Um, and I've done some creative writing on the side as well, but... Uh, but it was it was it was quite challenging, I have to say, to kind of like try and write this as a as a feature. Um, Laura knows this, but a lot of people don't know this. I actually wrote this article twice um, because uh, there were circumstances that led to that restricted kind of how I could do my interviews, um, circumstances that were out of anyone's hands. Um, and so I wrote it once, tried to get an article in before the deadline, and then literally on the last day. I was able to interview my grandmother like the one day before the deadline. So we were supposed to have these articles in, I think on the 1st of May and on the night of the 30th, so the, the 29th at night of April, my grandmother calls me and says, okay, I'm, you should interview me now. Um, and so I, I did, I interviewed her late at night and I, and I wrote the article again the following day, practically from scratch. Um, and so... Uh, you know that 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 was i think quite challenging um but it was really i think coming back to the workshops the 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 work on trauma i think was was really interesting in the session we did on 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 trauma induced reporting because i think in my own kind of like short career as an academic so far i've often tried to like not think of myself as being involved in what i'm documenting um and i think in some ways this is a it's, I think, for, for people who are engaged researchers, you know, particularly when they're very early career and very young engaged researchers, a lie that they tell themselves. Um, but in this case, I, I couldn't perpetuate that because obviously it's, a, it's an oral history of, of my own mother and grandmother. Um, and, and so that was, um, that was something that I, I, you know, I didn't realize until later on that you know, in the days that followed me writing, I just had moments where I was just thinking about some of the things that were said in the interviews. And I was like, whoa, that happened. You know, and that explains so much because of course, I experienced part of this history, right? I was alive for some of it. Um, but while I was experiencing it, I couldn't think in that moment how it was connected to the Nakba. And there's a point I think in the story where my mother also says something like, well, growing up in a war zone distracts from things. Um, and so I realized that my mother also couldn't think in the moment of her life when she was growing up how those things connected to the Nakba. Um, and then just again to also pick up on the notion of universal topics um, and kind of linking to universal universal themes. Um, I think, um, in fact, this is slightly an answer as well to the question from Ahmed Pervez um, about the importance of, of cross-solidarity. Um, I think part of the reason that the, the Palestinian cause as well is, 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 is so kind of like well-known despite kind of these very tangible and very clear attempts to erase us, as Odette was saying, um, is because of the fact that, you know, our cause is so interlinked with so many other things that are happening and have happened in the world, um, such as, for example, um, Ahmed's point about him being from Kashmir, um, Indian-occupied Kashmir to be specific. Uh, and so... In a sense, those universal themes are not only important in terms of storytelling, but also in terms of like formulating kind of coalitions and avenues for resistance. Um, and so 
beyond just being able to tell the stories. And telling the stories in themselves is, of course, a form of resistance, but building those connections, not just between themes and, 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 and narratives, but between people as well who experience, you know, oppression around the world in the same moment uh, was also, I think, incredibly important. And, and, and that also comes to the fore in, in trying to strike this balance. Thank you, Abdullah, and thank you for, for bringing in that solidarity aspect as well and talking about how these stories stay with you. Um, Zain, would you like to take this question next? Sure. Um, for me, I think the main challenge was sort of trying to, there were so many details that I could not include in the story, and I think that was one thing that I really struggled with because there's a lot longer, like the Nakba and the consequences of the Nakba, but also like during the, the way they fell in love and all of that story around my grandparents. I wanted to like highlight as much as possible. And this is a story close to my heart, as I mentioned earlier, and it's something I grew up with. So I, it's always in the back of my mind. And I also, when I interviewed my mother again, like um, asking me the questions and I, I got, I learned even more. Every time I talked to my mom, I learned more and more about my grandparents and, and their story. And I think that was something that I struggled with, um, you know, and, and trying to sort of find ways as well in terms of like, of, trying to write this in a sense that would flow in a journalistic future writing, but also conducting it in an oral history and how do I do justice to the story, as I mentioned earlier, because oral history is something that is so vital. Like, again, the story was passed down from my grandparents to my mother and understanding how that transferred from my grandparents to my mother, who didn't also experience the Nakba, she heard it from my parents, grandparents, and how I then heard it from her. Um, was really important. Um, but as as the other panelists mentioned, I think one of the most important workshops that we had was the trauma-induced reporting workshop and understanding sort of the way trauma manifests. And, and to this day, I can always remember, Laura, what you mentioned in, in, in that session in terms of how the Nakba impacted you and how your parents react to certain things. And it made me start thinking about like, why does my mom tell the story in this specific way? And why is it being told in that way? And I think it was really important to sort of have that in the back of my mind when I was interviewing my mo my mother. Uh, but I think what was most valuable about this workshop was sort of the space that was provided for us to empower us, to give us the space to ask questions, to discuss our stories. And every workshop was powerful in its own way. Um, we don't often have these safe spaces for Palestinians where we can ask and talk and feel empowered to even talk about these stories, especially when it comes to, it's a lot of Nakba denying as well going on. So to have that space to, you know, go beyond what is what we always have to prove ourselves as Odette mentioned right um and I did not only learn from the like the instructors and or from you Laura but I also learned from the panel from the writers here I learned so much from each of you guys um and the stories that you provided and sort of the questions that were being asked uh, as well in the workshops I think it was really really powerful and having such a safe space as well so yeah Thank you so much, Zain. And I've also learned from all of you as well. So I really appreciate that we were able to, to share space all together. Um, now, before we go to the reading of, of Samahfal's uh, story, which Marah has graciously offered to, to read it, we did receive a question for Samah, and I had one for her, and she, she graciously accepted to answer it. Um, and I think that if she wants to expand on it, like we can also share it later. But it was a question about identity. So Samah is an Afro-Palestinian writer. Her story focused on the identity of a family that she thought was Lebanese, but was actually Palestinian or came from a Palestinian heritage. So I asked her about that. I asked her about how did identity come through your story and how did how did it feel for you as someone who also grapples with identity a lot in your own work? And this is what she told me. Exploring identity is vital in my work. 
It took me a long time to figure out my own intersections and realize why I always felt sort of in the margins in any given group I was associated with. And by associated with, I mean what I was perceived as and categorized as by others. When people saw me as Palestinian, they often did not acknowledge or accept that I am also of African descent. And when they read me as black, they could not comprehend that I was a Palestinian. So for me, it's become very important to look at the nuance and dive deep into these multitudes that make up a person. I think that's why I was so fascinated with Shafiq's story, because I realized that maybe I myself did the same towards the Muslim family. That is, I clocked them as Lebanese early on, simply based off of their accent, and did not first think of the nuance that might exist there. Marah, if you would please read the excerpt from Samah's story. Of course, and Samah, if you're viewing this, I hope I can do your story justice. It's beautiful, and I encourage everybody to read it and read all the rest of these stories, of course. Mary decided to move to Palestine from Lebanon nearly two decades before the Nakba. After saving up enough money as a domestic helper, she had asked her employers if they knew anyone in Palestine who required her services. They referred her to a family in Yaffa. Soon after moving, she met and fell for Shafiq's father, Ahmed, a Muslim man from Ramallah who worked in the city as a cook. They married and welcomed their first child, Shahid, in 1938, 1937, or 1939, Shafiq jokes. The ambiguous birth date reminds me of my own parents, whose birth certificates and official documents were lost in the fray of exile. Many birthdays from that time are informed guesses at best. By the 1940s, Yaffa's vibrant cityscape had seen a lot of upgrades. The population had plans to expand and build more infrastructure. Meanwhile, illegal settlements were also expanding, with the invaders frequently instigating revolts. Shafiq's, father, Shafiq's mother feared the worst. I'm so sorry. Her freedom of movement was essential, and she couldn't fathom not being able to visit the holy sites as she pleased. She didn't think about leaving Palestine altogether. Instead, Mary wished to go east. She wanted to go to Bethlehem, Shafiq says, his soft wrinkles deepening into the warmth of his smile. He thought that being away from the bustle of Yaffa would keep them safe. Through connections, her husband was able to find a job in the courthouse of Bethlehem. They left soon afterward. I don't have the exact dates of when they left. Shafiq shakes his head. He lowers his eyes and for a moment I sense him retreating. I wish I could go ask her now to be sure, but the grave. He playfully raises his hands in defeat. The corners of his mouth turn downward, a bittersweet nostalgia bubbling behind the surface of his smile, as if mining for some long buried memory or cross-checking information he's been keeping filed away. Shafiq lowers his head, his silvery white head of hair catching the sunlight filtering in through the window. I look toward the living room. His grandson naps in his grandmother's arms. His earlier cries having given way to gentle snores. I think they left before the Nekva. Shafiq finally breaks the silence in the early 1940s. His approximation is based on tidbits of information he's acquired over a lifetime, including a memory of his oldest brother, Shahid, returning to visit Yaffa from Amman in the 1970s. He was able to find a way to his old family home without help, which meant he was old enough to remember the ways when they left. His parents had the foresight to see what was happening and escaped Yaffa preemptively to protect their family and remain in their homeland, Palestine. In November of that year, the United Nations formally recommended the partition plan for Palestine, which would make Yaffa part of the settler colonial state of Israel. In the time between Mary and Ahmed's decision to leave and the Nekva, 95% of Yaffa's indigenous population was forcibly expelled by Zionist militias. In 1967, 
the Mosaitis family was forced to leave Palestine for good. By then, Shafiq was an eager teenager completing his high school education. Less than 15 minutes into his last exam at the Tara Sanchez Boys School, the principal burst into the classroom on a sunny day in June and told the students that school was canceled. The war had begun. Shafiq took the bus home and ran to his mother to tell her what had happened. Mary's old fears were coming true. They huddled around the radio as rockets flew over the city. One exploded on the street beneath their home, leaving a big crater in the road. That evening, someone drove around the city with a megaphone and told everyone to place white flags outside their home. I watched with my little sister as the soldiers started walking down the street, Shafiq described. They started to sing. His voice goes up a notch in disbelief. I looked at my sister and said, this is colonization. We are being colonized. Thank you so much, Marah. I've shared Samah's story and everybody's stories in the chat. I hope you could all read them. They're available in English, Arabic, and Spanish. Um, and we hope that you're, they're, they're going to be um, accessible to everybody. So there is a question. Uh, we may not have a lot of time, but we're actually on time. We're going to end in 12 minutes. We do have a question that I think was directed at Zen, but I think can apply to everybody. So if anybody else would also like to take it, is what did you learn about your mother through memory narrative about her parents or your grandparents' experience? And I think that could apply to you, Odette, as well, because you you interviewed the descendants of Sidu Habib, as well for you, Abdullah, you interviewed your mother and Marah, I, I don't know if you've had conversations with, with your parents. So what does this tell you about transmission of historical knowledge through generations? Um, Zin, maybe you can take that first. First, um, I think in general, I just learned about the importance sort of, of oral history when it comes to Palestinians and the idea of how, you know, it's so important to sort of, you know, transmit these stories and pass them down, um, you know, from my grandparents passing them down to my mom, passing them down to me. And I think what I learned about my mother is sort of her love for her parents and, and how much their story has impacted her. And I think I see that as well impact on me. And I think, you know, it's so important to have these spaces where I can ask my mom questions. I can learn about this. I wish I had the chance to talk to my grandparents and sort of try to reserve these stories. Um, uh, but, you know, that wouldn't wasn't possible. And just having that space to ask my mom and, and grow up and knowing this and now finally being able to sort of write about it. Because um, usually a lot of, and I think a lot of you, a lot of the writers um, in, in this panel's speaker as well could relate to is a lot of this is just oral history, right? A lot of it is stories being passed down and no one has really had the time or chance to sort of write it down and I think what is so important about what I, I did here was um, this is something that I could you know save and hopefully as well pass it down to my future you know, my kids and future generations as well to sort of reserve this story for them um, I my, my grandparents never had the chance to sort of write it down but I was able to get some snippets from my mom and somehow I transmitted it to the story and hopefully you know it'll be something that I would be passed down and, and not forgotten because the Nakba would always be something significant in our lives and then Palestinians in the futures. So, yeah. Thank you, Zen. What, what about you, Odette? I know that there were also reactions from your family members after the story was published. Yes, so one of the most challenging thing for me was, and I understood this after I finished writing, was how censure provokes self-censure, censorship, sorry, okay? So censorship provokes self-censorship. So because our voices have been restricted for so long and we have been afraid to show our stories for so long, we are not even as Palestinians or victims or survivors or whatever you wanna call them, we're not even sharing this with our 
with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues. So it is it is very sad to see this per, this horrible effect of censorship and that we ourselves are not telling our own stories because of fear, whatever fear that is. So um, when actually Sido Habib passed away on January this year. So I where did I get all this information? Because for many, many years, I had this idea of writing down his memories. And I recorded him on my phone, on cameras. When we traveled to Palestine, when he visited us here in Colombia, I recorded him. And I didn't know when or what or how I was going to use all this material. And the time finally came, thanks to, to this wonderful initiative. And that is something I would even like suggest to other people, like even if you don't have in any close future plans to write something, just record it or begin writing your ideas or record this person because he or she is not going to be um, immortal, right? But we, our stories are immortal. I mean, until we receive justice and accountability, our stories are still relevant and will be for a long time. And yes, the family was very happy that I was writing. Some of them at the beginning were like, no, don't put my name or don't mention any names or I don't want to be interviewed as well as maybe happened with Abdullah. They were sometimes fearful. They they were ashamed, ashamed of what had happened at some point or worse of it, they didn't even know what had happened to Sido Habib and his family. And that for me was the most disturbing thing to learn. Like most of the family had no idea on what about what happened in 1948 and at the end they were really happy and as Laura mentioned some days ago um, one of Sido Habib's sons visited his grave in Michigan yeah Michigan Flint I think that's Michigan and he was very happy saying we wrote your story right like the time came and we we wrote your story and he just continued to repeat this in in the graveyard and that made me feel really proud obviously that but it's also a calling for all of us to make our our forefathers our grandparents and parents proud and to immortalize their stories thank you so much Odette that that was what made me cry <laughs> when I got that video from Odette and I and I and I really do see the impact of these stories at least on a personal level I know that Shafiq messaged um, Samah as well and told her you inspired me to write about my own story as well in my own words so I think this is really important Abdullah maybe you want to tackle this and then Marah yeah um so the first the first thing that's worth uh bringing up at this point so there are two things that I kind of want to 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 mention the first is it's it's always important to remember and and I think um in many ways like some of the conversations that we had during the workshops showed this that the Nakba is, it's not just an event or an ongoing event, it's a structure. And a lot of academics obviously have said this, um, so it's not an original idea. But um, it being a structure means that kind of in a way being Palestinian is um, inevitable. Uh, and 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 kind of ultimately like having to reckon with that is something that's inevitable as well. So, so for example, like, um, in 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 my experience of, of of interviewing particularly my mother, um, you know, I I know the moment when I realized I was Palestinian, which was uh, during the start of the second intifada and the, and the killing of Muhammad al-Durra, Allah yirhamu. Um, 
I didn't realize, obviously, as a child that my mother at one point in her life also had a moment where she realized or had several moments where kind of like her, she, she, she more kind of prominently started to develop a consciousness of being specifically Palestinian rather than just having been someone who fled Lebanon. Um, and, and, and I didn't realize as well until, until I actually interviewed my mother that my own journey of self-discovery of being Palestinian in that sense was also part of my mother's journey. Um, and so I think that was actually really emotional for me. I had to sit by myself and drink shai and moramiya after because I couldn't, uh, it, was, it was really heavy to bear at the time. Um, but the, the, the second thing I kind of, so, so in a sense, like ultimately, like um, there are many different ways of trying to deal with the trauma of the Nakba as a structure. Um, but ultimately in the end, I think everybody, and in the initial drafts of the story, I took this out for brevity, but in the initial drafts, there was also um, a, a reference to kind of how my sister and I had different experiences of it. So my sister and I are five years apart. Um, so she was, of course, much, much younger than I was when, when, when the second intifada began. Um, and we had very different roots, but we ultimately arrived at the same conclusion, which was that we realized that we had to learn about our Palestinian identity, and that was really important. Um, and so I think there are many ways of dealing with this, with this, um, you know, with the, the structure of the Nakba, but ultimately the end point is kind of reconnecting with kind of this broader archive of, 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 of narratives and, and of testimony and of witness um, and of, 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 of kind of reckoning with our, our existence as Palestinians collectively. The second thing just really quickly that I wanted to bring up was that as I had already said, and as many people had said, of course, like sometimes family members are hesitant to share stories. Um, and what was really surprising to me was after the story was published, I was terrified when the story was published, I have to admit. I don't know if anyone else was, but I was really scared. Um, and I think it was like, once the story was published, I shared it with my partner immediately, but then it took me like almost 12 hours to share it with my grandmother because I was like, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> what's she going to say? Um, but I was really surprised to see that there was a sort of relief in her story being out there. And it was the same when I shared it with my mother. And my mother started sharing it with everyone she knew, all the Palestinians she had known. We come from a really big community of Palestinians um, in the Gulf. Um, and, and, and in some sense, you know, although there was this hesitation to, to, to share the, the story in the first place or to share these testimonies, there was like a sense of relief. And so, I mean, the only way truly to heal from 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 the trauma of the Nakba, obviously, is to free Palestine. Um, you know, there's there's no there's no full healing without that. But but it's important to note, I think, and it's worth mentioning that that kind of telling these stories and people being aware and acknowledging that these stories exist and happened has maybe a limited healing effect. And I think, given kind of like the immense kind of trauma of 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 dealing with the Nakba as a structure, you know, that limited healing is, is worthwhile and, and I think crucial, actually, if we want to think of Palestinian futures and have kind of like the, the psychological capacity to be able to, to enact that. Thank you so much, Abdullah. Sorry, and that was a bit long. Don't worry, I'm glad, I'm glad it was also received well. <laughs> I was also very scared, just like <laughs> to get these out, but I'm, I'm so happy that they're out. Marah, do you want to take this and then I can close this out? Yes, um, Abdullah, I, a lot of that sentiment, I felt it as well. <laughs> I was terrified to share the story. Um, and also kind of reconnecting back to um, that original question of like, for Zan, what did you learn about your mother? 
I actually had to have family members involved in all of my interviews. Um, firstly, because of course the interviews were completely in Arabic and my grandparents each speak a different dialect. <laughs> so like some was a little bit more Salahi um, or like the villager dialect and then some was Medani or like the city dialect. Um, so I had to have a lot of help there, but also at the same time, um, this is a very, very vulnerable conversation to have on many levels, of course, for myself, um, but for my parents and for um, my aunt who was involved in the interviews of my grandparents. While I'm uncovering these histories, they're also learning a lot too. And what I had learned throughout this is that there are some stories that even my family didn't know about my grandparents. And I think there are many different reasons for that, but a large part of it is similar to what Odette had said, is this, sense, this idea of self-censorship, self but also in the fact that we have been living through this for decades. We're at 75 years. How much of this do we allow to control the narratives of our lives? And one of the most important things that we also learned in this workshop is that we cannot focus on um, narratives that place, that place Palestinians strictly as victims without um, any sort of agency, because we do have agency and we have stories to tell. And so I think a large part of that is when my grandparents were raising their children, they didn't want to drag them into um, these some very tragic stories and some very painful memories. They had to sort of suppress those to be able to successfully sort of transition their children into a very long life of displacement. And then my parents carried that on into raising us. And so we're generations that have been displaced. Um, we're collecting their stories, the original individuals who were displaced. And I'm learning so much about what my parents knew about their families, what my grandparents were willing to share with my parents when they were, were growing up. And also why they suppress certain aspects of their history. Um, one thing that came up, a lot of, a lot of um, my interviews, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to be quick, but I'm trying to be brief, but a, a lot of my interviews did touch on some certain aspects of like Palestinian history, but they were very fragmented and sort of discombobulated. And so it was difficult for me to even include those in the stories. And Laura knew we had to go back and forth a lot when um, we were editing the story because there were a lot of instances that all three of my grandparents could remember and stated was very clearly a fact of um, Palestinian history, but we could not find any evidence for. And so part of that is also, we don't often have the platform to have these stories at such a personal level. Um, and when we do, we have very significant icons and individuals, especially um, from the realm of, I'll take it from sort of like the academic perspective as well, but we have these icons of um, Palestinian identity and Palestinian history and who speak on um, our lineage and our heritage. And oftentimes individuals who are outside of the Palestinian experience kind of hone in on those voices because they've been accepted in um, Western or academic realms. But our stories are very impactful too and they speak to different aspects of history that sometimes we simply do not have very clear um, collections of, right, that are available to Western audiences or are available to global audiences. And so that was something incredible that this workshop did. Um, and it was also really, really incredible and personal for me in the fact that we translated this to three languages. The only one of my grandparents who can read Arabic is my grandfather. Um, and so I was terrified, but very excited to be able to give him his story back and sort of, sort of show him 
how I saw his story and how I see him now um, in this lens where he sort of deconstructed these barriers. Um, and also translating it to Spanish was incredible because although I didn't grow up, I grew up in the United States, but I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. And my community often was very disconnected from my reality. And it was very difficult for me to ever be able to articulate what the Palestinian experience truly was. And a very significant aspect of that is a language barrier. And we sort of get disconnected from our communities when we cannot translate our reality into um, an accessible format. And so translating this in Spanish also allows me to sort of reconnect with my community and sort of go back and show them that this is my reality and it's known. And I just wanted to nod at um, Odette as well. The work that you do is incredible. Palestinians are displaced globally. We don't, we're not centralized in one certain area. Every single writer in this workshop speaks to that. And every single one of these stories speaks to the varying facets of the Palestinian condition. Um, and so I just wanted to say in my final statement, thank you to Laura and thank you to IPS and um, UPA and um, the Center for Air Studies at Georgetown for Contemporary Air Studies. It, this is an incredible effort. And you, anybody who's watching this or anybody who has read these stories, you can absolutely recreate this experience by just opening conversations with any individual that you know, any family member, and ask them about their experience. Even if it's not um, linked all the way back to the next, everything is linked back to our history. And there's always a story to tell there. Thank you so much, Mara. What a beautiful closing to, to this event. I just have a few remarks. By engaging in these conversations, as you all have done, you know, the writers were not just asking the questions for us as readers, you as viewers, but they were also curious, who, who were curious about, you know, what happened to Teta Salwa, Jiddo Fayez, Siti Hafsa, Sido Mahmoud and Teta Nazmiye, Sido Habib and Jiddo Shafiq. They were asking these questions for themselves as well because they came from these names. They are the grandchildren, the relatives, the friends whose upbringing is a direct result of these experiences. The stories of the ancestors are their stories too. And these conversations do not end with this publication. As I said before, there is great power in journalism when it's respectful and truthful, especially when it comes to Palestine. And when you read these stories, if you haven't already, I've shared the links, you will recognize places and events that exist in Palestinian life. From the churches of Beit Lahm, the massacre of Ailabun, the Iraqi martyr cemetery in Jenin, to the figs of Silwad, the Miyamiye refugee camp in Lebanon, and the port of Yaffa. We know that Palestinians were expelled by sea, that there was a battle in Jenin, that 14 Palestinians were executed in Ailabun, that families were forced across the Alembi Bridge. Today, through these stories, we have shared their names their faces, and the descendants of the Palestinians who have lived in these places and experienced these events. Experiences that trickle down, an unhealed trauma manifesting itself in generations of Palestinians in the homeland and in exile, who call for justice and liberation. There is resistance in the written word. We are combating this colonial erasure of our histories and of our people. We are preserving and uplifting a narrative that belongs to us, a history from below. 